Hi, this is Tony Gwynn. You're listening to KCSB FM 91.9 Santa Barbara. <laughs> KCSB 91.9 FM, Santa Barbara. Welcome to Radio Causeway. I'm Pav. I'm Tim. This is your weekly showcase, bringing you timely interviews and bridging your world of music. Today on Radio Causeway, we are speaking with Andrew McCumber, who is a PhD candidate in sociology at UC Santa Barbara on his recent 2020 Marvin E. Olson award-winning paper, Killing for Life, Species Eradication, and the Ecology of Meaning in Ecuador's Galapagos Islands. And later, we have the Mullet Strange News, Mullet at the Movies, and Pop's Pick. Stay with us. You're on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. This is Radio Causeway. I'm Tim. And I'm Chris. From anticoagulant poisons to helicopter-mounted rifles, the systematic extermination of non-native species takes many physical forms, but exists in part due to cultural norms. Andrew McCumber, PhD candidate in sociology at UC Santa Barbara, takes a look at this and more in his 2020 Marvin E. Olson award-winning paper, Killing for Life, Species Eradication, and the Ecology of Meaning in Ecuador's Galapagos Islands. Andrew, welcome to Radio Causeway. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by talking about the provocative title of the paper uh, and like, and can you explain like the apparent contradiction of killing and life as well as what is an ecology of meaning? Sure. Um, uh, as far as the killing and life contradiction goes, um, that was sort of the, the central contradiction that really um, got me interested in the uh, topic, or at least in terms of uh, species eradication and conservation in the first place, just because uh, I feel like we tend to think about um, environmentalism as something that's motivated by uh, sort of more tender feelings, wanting to preserve life rather than end it. Um, and so it struck me as um, a kind of interesting puzzle to try to piece apart why um, there would be so much killing in an environmental uh, motivated project um, and how we sort of reckon with that um, as environmentalists and um, as animal lovers, potentially. Um, but 
Uh, as a side note, I did realize after the fact that I sort of ripped that title off of a uh, Chuck Klosterman book, Killing Yourself to Live. Uh, but mine's a little bit different, so I think it's all right. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, well, so I guess... You Klosterman calling you up in the middle of the night with a cease and desist. <laughs> well, I, I figured I'd get out in front of that now. There you go. Um, but uh, I, I read some of that book while I was in the Galapagos Islands, so, you know... Uh, it all comes full circle. But um, I guess uh, the ecology of meaning is just the concept that I uh, sort of use or came up with to try to explore that contradiction, that central tension of um, the, um, how killing is, has such an important place in these projects that are uh, otherwise about preserving life. Um, and the important part of that story is... Um, it sort of revealed itself to me was that um, how people balance what individual animals mean as sort of cultural objects um, and uh, how people um, make sense of nature at large. So nature as an overarching concept. So um, the same way that individual species uh, combine in, in an ecology to you know, make up an ecosystem, um, there's a similar thing that I identified going on where um, our overarching ideas about nature are sort of being pieced together by these smaller scale um, cultural ideas of what individual animals mean in our imaginations. So Andrew, in your paper, correct me if I'm wrong, but you study essentially what amounts to conservationists who want to essentially preserve the life of uh, Galapagos's native giant tortoise by uh, means of, by basically exterminating introduced goat populations who would otherwise basically take aim at these turtles and potentially uh, eliminate them entirely. Is that correct? Um, yeah, that's, that's mostly correct. Um, the, uh, the project, um, so the goat eradication actually already uh, happened. Um, that was in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, the one, the island that I visited where there's a currently an eradication going on um, is uh, they're more targeting um, rodents and feral cats. Um, and actually it's part of a larger project for my dissertation that's um, not just about the Galapagos Island, but is actually the, the sort of combining overarching theme of it is rat eradication. Um, so I look at a bunch of different places where there's... Um, they're try there's some concerted effort to kill rats for different reasons. Um, but so that's what drew me initially to this site, um, and what turned me onto this idea, but the goat eradication, um, sort of wound up being, becoming an important, uh, part of the story. Um, cause that's sort of what drew a lot of attention to these efforts. Um, and, and just like you said, yeah, the, the goats had, uh, were basically just destroying the, um, the native tortoises' habitats. There are these drip pools on the island that um, are really, really vital to um, the giant tortoises there living. Uh, and they were eating everything in sight and just denuding the landscape and, and ruining those, um, that important part of the habitat. And it's safe to assume that humans were directly responsible for the introduction of these goats into this particular habitat, correct? That's right, yeah. Uh, they'd been there for years. Um, uh, my understanding of the timeline is um, 
them, uh, goats being originally brought to the island hundreds of years ago, but mostly remaining sequestered on a, um, a portion of the island. Um, and this is the, the island in question for that eradication called Island Isabella. It's, uh, I think, the largest of the Galapagos Islands. Um, and there's a tiny little isthmus in the middle of the island um, that gets really narrow, and it's uh, this um, rough volcanic rock formation. And that sort of has served as a, um, a natural barrier for most of the, t- the time that the goats have been there that have kept them off the northern part of the island. Um, and at a certain point, they wound up venturing beyond uh, that rock uh, formation. Um, and uh, that was the point at which um, these conservationists took notice and really thought that they had to do something on that, particularly that northern part of the island. So, uh, you know, in your, in your paper, you reference, make reference to McDowell's idea of cu- cultural entropy. Like, can you talk about what that is and how it connects to what you saw in the Galapagos Islands? Sure. So um, it's uh, Terence McDonnell has uh, in his book, um, uh, I think it's called Best Laid Plans. Um, he does an analysis, a cultural analysis of um, AIDS campaigns in, uh, in Africa. I think it's in Ghana. Um, and um, he is really invested in looking at how the materiality of objects um, impacts their ability to uh, convey appropriate meanings. Um, so for, for him, for his uh, uh, sort of sociological puzzle, he was looking at like, how do we have all these AIDS campaigns with all this, these materials, this, whether they're billboards or they're um, like awareness ribbons or even uh, in more direct efforts like condoms uh, for safe sex, like all these different objects are supposed to be doing some kind of job towards the goal um, of eliminating AIDS or spreading awareness. Um, And they do so by um, conveying appropriate uh, cultural meaning. Um, And uh, what he found is that they aren't doing that. They're being repurposed for other things. The, um, the billboards are being plastered over um, and the ribbons are fading so that they're a different color and they look more like uh, breast cancer awareness ribbons and AIDS ribbons. Um, so basically this idea uh, for my purposes, um, the important thing about it is the idea of the messiness of materiality and its relationship to meaning. So um, if we think about uh, animals, um, they are sort of the ultimate um, unruly objects because they have consciousness of their own and uh, don't necessarily want to um, or aren't consciously going to be playing their part in participating in the kind of meaning that we want to put them to. So that's kind of how it figured into the analysis for me. Cool. Well, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Andrew McCumber, PhD candidate in sociology, speaking with us on his 2020 Marvin E. Olson award-winning paper, Killing for Life, Species Eradication and the Ecology of Meeting in Ecuador's Galapagos Islands. We're going to take a quick music break. Happens to be Andrew McCumber's band, friend of my youth, with the song Ancestral. You're on Radio Causeway.
Hi, this is Chuck from Freelance Wales, and you are listening to Radio Causeway on KCSB 91.9 FM, Santa Barbara. Welcome back to Radio Causeway. I'm Tim. And I'm Chris. From anticoagulant poisons to helicopter-mounted rifles, the systematic extermination of non-native species takes many physical forms but exists in part due to cultural norms. Andrew McCumber, PhD candidate in sociology at UC Santa Barbara, takes a look at this and more in his 2020 Marvin E. Olson award-winning paper, Killing for Life, Species Eradication, and the Ecology of Meaning in Ecuador's Galapagos Islands. Welcome back to Radio Causeway, Andrew. When I read your paper, it opens out up with a really intriguing visual. So we discuss, you discuss large introduced goat populations uh, in the Galapagos Islands that uh, pose a threat to a uh, endangered giant tortoise. Uh, and it opens up with a conservationist group essentially hovering over the island in a helicopter, opening fire on these goat populations with machine guns. And that's really uh, struck me also, we were talking earlier about this sort of uh, uh, the irony at play with conservation uh, through through means of killing. But I was also considering the residual impact. So what do you think these conservationists would say when we say, well, are we not possibly impacting other species by virtue of flying, say, a helicopter or disruptive noises like machine gun fire in the service of preserving an animal by the extinguishing of another. Um, what do you think conservationists would say to our own methods by which we eradicate these species? Yeah, well, um, I mean, what you hit on is sort of exactly what was so interesting to me about the topic. Um, I. Uh, I mean, we talked about the sort of contradiction um, between killing and um, uh, the sort of more tender feelings that typically motivate uh, environmentalism. Um, but the other sort of central tension um, that that example, I think, gets at so well uh, is typically when we think about nature or environmentalism, we tend to think of, um, and especially in these wild places like the Galapagos and we think of like pristine nature, it's supposed to, we're not supposed to have an impact on it, right? We're um, supposed to leave no trace behind um, and nature is supposed to be this thing that is completely free of human influence. Um, and that has always struck me as sort of really important to the, ethos behind environmental conservation or in environmentalism as we typically understand it. So for me, it was like, you know, talk about a big human intervention, like getting up on a helicopter and shooting a bunch of animals with a rifle, like that's an enormous intervention. Um, so with the research, I was really trying to sort of get at or um, get the conservationists themselves to explain in their own words um, how, uh, how they sort of reconcile those things. Um, and it was kind of tough. Um, you know, part of one of the reasons I landed on this concept um, where uh, we have uh, sort of smaller scale cultural meaning where like uh, the way that we think about animals sort of produces our overarching idea of nature um, is that when I would ask the conservationists involved in these, um, these uh, 
initiatives directly, like how they, what they envision as their role or the idea of nature, they were sort of fuzzy about how they defined it. Um, and the, the clearest ways that they got at it, the clearest articulations of it were in reference to individual species. Like, like the most concrete thing they could tell you is like, this place would be a better place if we had these native species around. Um, that doesn't necessarily speak to the larger, messier questions all the time of, uh, you know, what's our role in nature? What's our role in an ecosystem? How do we defend nature? Um, and they acknowledge that those, uh, those tensions exist and that they sort of constantly have to be negotiated. Um, but for that, for their part, doing that involves working from like a central premise that, uh, things are better if these animals are around these specific animals right so, so you know in your paper in relation you're talking about and they're talking about um uh acceptable environmental change so i was saying what actually constitutes acceptable environmental change and how is the line drawn and at what cost i think uh these are questions that i was having at least yeah, yeah, no, there are definitely questions that I had and continue to have. Um, but, um, and I think, again, I think that's sort of a central piece of the question for me is, uh, um, you know, you go, you go into a kind of project like this thinking that there's uh, going to be a clear line uh, that, you know, somebody draws and sometimes there is, but it's not always in the same place. And uh, the, um the interesting thing to me wound up mostly being the process of the sort of negotiation process of figuring out where that line lies. If you're dealing with an inherent contradiction, the, you know, that contradiction being we want to help nature, but nature is by definition supposed to not have any human influence. So how do we simultaneously influence nature um, and not influence it um, in a way, but uh, what I found was that, you know, there, it's, there are these concepts that are drawn by these stark um, sort of binaries like that we've been talking about. And you, you have to sort of make the rules um, conform to uh, a workable way of um, engaging in conservationism. You have to you have to accept the basic premise that we shouldn't really disturb nature too much, but you have to um, make some sort of ad hoc uh, exceptions for, okay, unless that human is a conservationist with this uh, very detailed plan of action. Uh, and that obviously that I'm interested in how that gets really messy because there are people who have livestock on the island, uh, and that was a, a negotiation that I heard a lot about um, the between the conservationists and the local uh, population. And it's like, um, on the one hand, you know, where does where does livestock or uh, agriculture, where does tourism, where does all that fit in? If uh, you know, as compared to the um, direct actions of conservationists, so you kind of you kind of wind up walking this line of human intervention is not okay unless X, Y, and Z are the case. And, and sometimes those lines have to be adjusted in progress, I think. I'm, to be clear, my, uh, my role in this or my goal is definitely not to find the, uh, the ultimate answer of how uh, conservationism should exist or like 
tell conservationists how to do their jobs, I'm more interested in just how they make that uh, distinction themselves or how they arrive at those uh, um, determinations based on the cultural meaning that's surrounding them. It would occur to me too, as I mentioned earlier, that we talk about not intervening as humans, but the goat's presence on the island in this case, uh, as we mentioned, is actually almost a direct <laughs> uh, result of human intervention, right? We wouldn't even need to exterminate these goats had they not been introduced by people in the first place. And I think that might be uh, an argument that the conservationists are putting forth that, hey, these don't belong here. There are plenty of these types of goats elsewhere, yet this is the only place in which the great uh, tortoise lives. And if we don't do something about what we did to try to correct our mistake, if you will, then this, uh, this endangered tortoise will go extinct by virtue essentially of human intervention, right? Yeah, so that, that's exactly, I think, the argument that a lot of them make. Um, and, uh, and I think it's a compelling argument for a lot of reasons. Uh, like they say, um, you know, the goats themselves are the product of human intervention. They're like sort of the original sin of human intervention on the landscape, right? Um, that, that like they weren't there prior to, like we can say that they've been there for hundreds of years, but in geological time, hundreds of years is barely anything. Um, but what that, the conversation that that opens up for me that I find so fascinating um, is if what we're trying to do is undo this effect that we've had in bringing goats to the island, if our goal is to sort of undo this one human intervention with a different human intervention, what is the point in time or is there a point in time where we're attempting to bring the landscape back to? Uh, and, uh, or is, is that the way that they're thinking about it? And th these were sort of the, the tough things to, to really get clear answers about. But, uh, I think it was especially interesting in this case, just because the Galapagos are so famous for the notion of change, um, you know, very slow evolution and change. Um, but in being so iconic for change, we sort of want them to exist as a snapshot in a, a, a specific image and remain unchanged in a way. Um, so it's, it's kind of tough for us to reconcile those two things in our heads and, and chart the most responsible way forward. Totally. Um, in your paper, you, you make a, a reference, you say, um, well, I say, do you see implications for this work expanding outside the realm of species eradication in the Galapagos Islands? So um, you, you made, made a reference, but uh, I was seeing if uh, you have specifics that you could share with us. Um, you mean in terms of my own research or? Well, in the uh, paper, I, I don't have it right in front of me, the quote, apologies, but you say, you know, that these ideas, they lend themselves to thinking of, of things beyond just this specific um, place and time. Yeah, well, I think uh, in general, um, uh, the applications are around thinking about environment, uh, environmental issues culturally. Mm -hmm. um, they're... Uh, cultural meaning is always sort of lurking in the background when we think about the environment, even though we tend to think about environmental issues in really sort of rational scientific terms. Um, but uh, what one of the things that I tried to show in this is um, 
that even those rational scientific terms are really built on cultural meaning. Uh, and, I, and again, that's not a bad thing, but um, that's something that we have to reckon with, particularly when we have dif uh, differences of opinion over what the best way forward in an environmental issue is. Um, uh, that particular argument is building off some other sociological scholarship that has um, looked at how um, environmental conflicts specifically are um, really ultimately cultural conflicts or clashes over uh, values and cultural meaning. Um, Justin Farrell is uh, one of the sociologists who's written a lot about this um, and influenced my work. Um, and so I see this as sort of um, hopefully helping to evaluate some of those situations in the future by um, giving us a framework for thinking about uh, cultural meaning as it relates to environmental issues. This story really reminds me of uh, a story I read not long ago about the rare Southeast Asian moon bear that was believed to be extinct. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an area in between the Koreas, the demilitarized zone, that essentially is a no man's land now, right? But right. now it's essentially a couple miles wide, several miles long, and no human dare set foot in there. One, because there are armed guards at either side waiting to take someone down, um, you know, if they were to cross into the border, but also because it's just laden with landmines because of the war. And uh, what we found was this species, this moon bear that was thought to be completely extinct, was found and not only is there, but is thriving within this no man's land. So only in the utter absence of, of human intervention will these things be able to to remain untouched and that's such a rare example in this world of uh, of access right we know every square inch of the globe now so it's really difficult i think for us to imagine a world without humans even possibly interfering in the natural environment anymore and i yeah. thought that was a, a really interesting example yeah definitely that that particular example reminds me of that uh, trend that happened online uh, during the beginning of the pandemic where everybody was posting nature stories about like animals coming out of hiding and stuff and saying like oh what if we're the virus and like we're hurting nature and yeah the idea being that like two weeks of staying indoors is gonna like heal all the, like ecological <laughs> harm that we've caused which is absurd obviously but like you can see in these pockets where um, where there's some reemergence for sure. Andrew, before we let you uh, go, where can folks find out more about the work that you've been doing? Uh, I have a website. Um, it's just andymacumber.com. Um, nice and easy to remember. Uh, and there's my contact information is listed on there too. There's some links to some papers that I've published before. Um, feel free to get in touch. Excellent. And then uh, also, uh, we're going to play another song from, from your band, uh, Friend of My Youth. Uh, can you talk just a moment about that? Sure. Um, so this is actually a, a band that um, I've been in since before I started grad school with uh, some friends who lived here and then uh, moved up to Corvallis, Oregon, right at the time that I started grad school. Uh, and about three years later, we started the band up again in a, this funny long distance format where I played drums. Uh, I would go up there every couple uh, months or so to play a show and work on songs. And uh, it was not the most uh, practical way to write an album, but we wound up writing 10 new songs. And uh, I went up there a couple 
last September, two Septembers ago, and uh, recorded my drum parts, and uh, album came out last summer. Well, if you're just joining us, we have been speaking with Andrew McCumber, PhD candidate in sociology, on his recent 2020 Marvin E. Olson award-winning paper, Killing for Life, Species Eradication and the Ecology of Meeting in Ecuador's Galapagos Islands. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. This is Tourist Town, friend of my youth. You're on Radio Causeway. And you listen to Radio Causeway with Bob and Tim, KCSB 91.9 FM. <laughs> Welcome back to Radio Causeway. I'm Tim. And I'm Chris. Just heard a track from brand new music from Colorama. Their song, And. Before that, Tourist Town from Friend of My Youth. It is time for the Mullet Strange News. <laughs> Mullet Strange News time. Chris, how about you take it away? Oh, man. Tim, my news story today stinks. Literally. <laughs> uh, so a few days ago, a German post office was forced to evacuate, and six workers were taken to the hospital due to a suspicious pungent package that turned out to contain a particularly smelly fruit. Now... 60 people were cleared out of this post office in uh, Schweinfurt, Germany, and 12 workers were treated for nausea. Uh, Six ambulances, five first responder cars, two emergency vehicles, and three different fire departments were involved in this incident. So the statement from the police said, due to the unknown content, it was initially unclear whether the suspect package posed a greater risk. Now, workers uh, feared the package was releasing some kind of harmful gas, but careful examination revealed the parcel contained, get this, four Thai durian fruits. Now, for those who might not be aware of what a durian fruit is, imagine Bowser from Super Mario Brothers lays an egg. It looks like that. It's basically like a small football that's covered in these big, sharp spikes. But inside of the, uh, the, the fruit is the, uh, in the middle, there's this kind of creamy yellow custard that's got a nice sweet uh, texture and flavor to it. But man, uh, it's, it's pungent. Uh, my first experience with a durian was when I was living on the Mesa. I came home and I'm like, whoa, what is that smell? And my roommates, sure enough, were, uh, were eating this durian. They offered me a piece. Uh, I didn't much care for it, but what really took me was it smelled almost like a dead body uh, dipped in rubbing alcohol. I'm not joking. Uh, it's been described by uh, this food writer, Richard Sterling, for the Smithsonian as turpentine and onions garnished with a gym sock. It's so, quite pungent. This is uh, an intense fruit. In fact, this is a fruit that, if I'm not mistaken, is actually illegal to bring into a hospital in Thailand uh, just due to the, the intense aroma of it. And it's also illegal in a couple other places now. So, man, uh, what a mess. On the bright oh, side, by the hammer, door. <laughs> yeah, the four durians actually did make it to their intended destination, but uh, not after much uh, much ruckus. So go out and get yourself a durian if you're just curious to see what one of these things looks and smells like. Just don't bring it anywhere near a public space, please. I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> 
Now it's your turn. All right. So, uh, which perfect space goes? This probably uh, might be something you'll be looking into if you're looking for some extra cash. NASA has some for you. If you can help them figure out how to create the first lunar toilet. <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah, so the space agency has a, a set an ambitious goal of sending astronauts back to the moon uh, by 2024, but obviously, send folks there, they're going to need to use the lavatory and toilet and so they need someone to figure out uh how to build that so let's see um the, the nasa may adapt the toilet design for its artemis lunar lander so it will need to work both in microgravity of space and zero g and on the moon where the gravity is about a sixth of what we feel on earth according to the design guidelines posted by nasa and hero x which allows anyone to create challenges to solve problems facing the world uh, the mission will include the first female astronaut to ever travel to the moon, so the toilets will need to accommodate both men and women. And the toilet design should also conserve water, help maintain a pristine environment, which is perfect from what we were talking about earlier, inside the lander that is free of odors and other contaminants, so your durian hopefully uh, will be contained as well. Uh, bonus points awarded to designs that will capture vomit without requiring the crew to crew member to put his or her head in the toilet. I don't understand what you'll see. Amazing. <laughs> Should Amazing. be able to support a crew of two astronauts for 14 days. Uh, yeah, it needs to weigh less than 33 pounds on Earth. But, uh, you know, the top prize will get you $20,000. Second and third place winners will get $10,000 and $5,000. Um, you know, this came out a few months ago. I've Folks might have been just wanting some, some, some toilet paper as the prize. Uh, <laughs> oh! <laughs> uh, I've got an idea. How about like a poop tube attached to a t-shirt cannon that's aimed right outside the window, which fired off into space. Thank you. I'll take my 35K now. <laughs> this is what I call a target-rich environment. There we go. Holy moly. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it is time for the mullet strange news. <laughs> That was the mullet strange news time. Oh. So next up, we've got our specialty. Was it a scratch or a pick? It was a scratch. I got to go. No, no pick. Well, look at what we have here. Pob's pick. It's time for Pob's pick where Pob brings us a track that he wants to share with us. This week, he's brought us uh, a song from... Waxahachie, the song is Witches off the new album St. Cloud. You're on Radio Causeway. Was it a scratch or a pick? It was a scratch. I gotta go. No, no pick. Well, look at what we have here. Pog's pick. That was Pog's pick. Waxahachie with the song Witches off the new album St. Cloud. Welcome back to Radio Causeway. I'm Tim. And I'm Chris. Hey, 
it's time for the mullet at the movies where we talk about a movie that we've been watching recently and share it with you all uh this week we're looking at the 2019 adam sandler film uncut gems directed by josh and benny safety safety correct me if i'm mispronouncing that one chris the safety bros yep Safety Bros, also known for, among other films, uh, Good Time, which we had also uh, watched recently. So what were some of your uh, impressions of of this uh, Uncut Gems? Man, Tim, this essentially was what amounts to the cinematic equivalent of a plane crash, of a a heart attack. Uh, One you just can't look away from, though. I mean, I was in it the whole time, like white knuckled. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I... I'm a grown up. I don't talk to the screen or anything, but this movie, I just wanted to shout at him sometimes like, just stop. No, don't. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it keeps you into it. Uh, Adam Sandler's character essentially is a jewel, uh, a jeweler in New York city who, uh, it gets in over his head. He owes a lot of money to certain people. It involves a giant uncut opal stone and a whole lot of tension, uh, a whole lot of tension movie really kept me in the whole time involved a great performance by adam sandler who's used to playing these you know man children of sorts a very uh, grown-up performance by him uh and an, uh, also an excellent debut performance by this lady julia fox who plays sort of his uh his side chick if you will uh excellent performance by her kevin garnett uh plays himself in this film and i thought it was fascinating that a film that was uh, shot in 2019, yet takes place in 2012, where Kevin Garnett is a forward for the Boston Celtics. He looks exactly the same as he did back then. I can't imagine another uh, NBA retired NBA player being able to do uh, this type of film. So uh, all in all, it was a one nail biter. I think I lost a couple years of my life watching it, but man, was it a, a fun ride. What did you think? Oh, I'm with you. I was. It was arguably the most stressful movie I've ever watched <laughs> for something that wasn't like high action you know it wasn't an action movie at all I was no. so stressed I was just tense the whole time it just seemed like um, the decisions that were being made it, it was uh, you just you're helpless watching this thing unravel uh, the Performances were fantastic, like you said, Adam Sandler playing um, a non-comedic role as he did in Punch Drunk Love. Uh, I think he's such a good actor when he, you know, specifically when he does dramatic roles. And, and, right, uh, absolutely. God, incredible. Okay. So from the A24 website, they, they write about the film, um, it says, from acclaimed filmmakers Josh and Benny Safdie comes an electrifying crime thriller about Howard Rapner, Adam Sandler, a charismatic New York City jeweler, jeweler, always on the lookout for the next big score when he makes a series of high stakes bets that could lead to a windfall of a lifetime. Howard must perform a precarious high wire act, balancing business, family, and encroaching adversaries on all sides in his relentless pursuit of the ultimate win. And in that, you got the Kevin Garnett, that's how he gets involved too. He gets so attached to this opal that he feels like it gives him that edge. And uh, I don't want to give away too much of the movie, but both these guys are looking for that edge and just are willing to put, put things on the line and take risks. 
Absolutely. I was uh, listening to a, a prominent film critic who was talking about the energy of the movie, uh, which is so clear. And he, he said something to the effect of, this movie made me care about basketball, like, a lot. <laughs> I'll say no more about that, but uh, it's so engaging. Uh, the Safdie brothers, uh, you mentioned Tim, we watched A Good Time not long ago, and that was a film prior to the to this one, filmed a few more years ago, starring Robert Pattinson. And uh, man, they've really come into their own. I can't wait to see what film they do next. Uh, I'll, I'll check out anything that they do. It's great. It's a fantastic example of what can be done uh, when the right creative minds put the right creative energies together. I think I read uh, their next project, and I know your feeling on remakes and, and stuff, but uh, in 48 hours, they've been uh, tasked at doing. What? <laughs> that could be interesting. Totally. Talk about Keeping an like, eye open for that. You know, it's automatic uh, suspense at the time time going. Uh, yeah. Um, filmschoolrejects.com uh, said about Uncut Gems, it's a story about living in a state of perpetual unfulfillment. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. Always Who would you cast to- as the Eddie Murphy character in 48 Hours? Oh, geez, put me on the spot. I'm so bad at doing stuff like that. Tough one. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to see who comes up. Totally. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, there's been a lot of really good actors, uh, that we've been. I could see Michael B. Jordan putting in a good performance there. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, so we both rated this on our five-point scale. I think we both put it at a 4.0, right? I believe so. Yeah, highly recommended. Uh, it's the only reason it didn't score a little higher was because like I'm, I'm losing years of my life, you know. <laughs> uh, not in a, it's certainly an unsettling feeling, but man, definitely can't take your eyes off the screen. That is absolutely true. We're gonna get back into some more music. Next up, we've got a track from the Jade Shader off their 2018 release, Sea Stacks and Sleece Stacks. The song is Edge of It All. Run Radio Causeway. The sound that goes around, cruising all up and down the highways and byways, under the tunnels and over the flyways, taking a little special trip today down a little something called the Radio Causeway. Sounds that lead the way with your boss DJs. You got Mr. Tim and Mr. Paul. Broadcasting from your number one station, your station from Creation 91.9 KCSB FM. Sound is murder. 
Welcome back to Radio Causeway. I'm Tim. And I'm Chris. Just heard a song there from the Jade Shader, Edge of It All, from their 2018 release, Sea Stacks and Sleece Slacks. It's a mouthful. Um, special thanks to Andrew McCumber, PhD candidate in sociology at UC Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara for speaking with us today. Our theme music was produced by Forrest Seguin. You can find us at radiocausway.org and kcsb.org. We'll see you next week. Radio Causeway is the presentation of KCSB Public Affairs. The opinions expressed were those of the individual speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of KCSB, the associated students, or the regents of the University of California. If you have a comment or wish to respond, please address correspondence to KCSB University Center, room 3185A, University of California, Santa Barbara, California, 93106. This is KCSB. 91.9 FM, Santa Barbara.